Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. One of the things I've noticed during this uh, political season, this election cycle, is how much I long for and how much I think other people long for good leadership. Like, we, we, we need it. We, we long for it. We, we hope for it. Like, will good leaders step up onto the scene and, and lead people? And, and you may be one of those people that you're like, I don't really get into politics. It's not really my thing. And I get that. But at some point... We have to, as a society, we have to live by rules, and some sort of laws that organize us and govern our behavior and how we treat one another. And, and so you need leaders to set those rules and maybe enforce some of those rules or put some boundaries around those. This is what good leadership does. It kind of unites people around common rules or laws or the agreements and said, okay, this is where we're going to go as a society. And leaders should set direction and, and a little bit of like mission and purpose as a, as a country. Now, ultimately, like your inner purpose and all that, that's not going to come from political leadership, but we, we need someone to kind of, and some people to kind of unite us and, and keep us all going in the same direction. And, and one of the things that's been so disappointing in, in 2020 and at other times, I'm sure, is, is the lack of leadership that I see above us. And this is just, this is not Chris the preacher talking, this is just Chris the citizen for a moment. Uh, I, you know, I just very disappointed, I think, in in the, it, at times, in the mayor, in the governor, and the president, and just and then senators, and just the people, and the things they fight about, and the things that they're into, and the decisions that they're making, uh, it's, it's disappointing. Um, and you, you sort of go like, man, why, why, why don't we have better le- leadership above us? Um, but I, I will say, as a leader myself, as someone who's been in leadership uh, for 20 plus years, um, I, I actually cut leaders a lot of slack. Like, sometimes when I hear people complain about leaders above them, I, I, I sort of want to go like, yo, have you ever led anything? You know, because when people are like, oh, those people up there, they don't know what they're doing. I'm like, have you ever tried it? It's, it's actually not that easy. Like, you have to make hard decisions that affect a lot of people with limited information, and you got to do it in real time, and it's, it's not great, and you, you want to keep waiting for the perfect thing to come along so you can make the perfect decision, but that's not, you know, we don't need, we don't need captains to guide the ships when the, when the sea is calm. You need it for rough waters. It's actually, leadership's really hard. And so a lot of times I will cut people slack in, in leadership and, and, and challenge people who criticize if they've never had to lead before. But still, I find myself longing for better leadership. Where where are the Winston Churchills? Where are the Abraham Lincolns? Where have these people gone? And why don't we have them stepping up to lead anymore? It's, it's, it's tough. And what I realized as I looked into the scripture is that I'm not the first person to complain about the lack of leadership above them. I'm not the first, we are not the first people to groan under the lack of leadership and go like, oh, isn't it awful? And those people up there, they don't know what they're doing. Like, this has been going on for the history of, of history. Um, it, it's been going on for a long time. And I want to look at some examples of that uh, that go way back into the Old Testament, way back into the ancient world. We're doing this series called The Road to Christmas. And, and everybody knows the Christmas story, and we'll read just a little piece of it today. But I want to talk about the things that got us there, that leads up to it, right? So think of this like, you know the movies, the, the prequels that they come out with? This is like a series that's like the prequels to the Jesus story, to the Jesus birth story. So this is like Batman Begins or like Phantom Menace. 
Hopefully it's better than Phantom Menace, but this is like the story before the story that you're like, oh, okay, this is where that, that came from. And I want to talk about uh, leadership. When, when Jesus is born, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus coming to earth is that he came in the fullness of time, is the way, that, the way it's worded, in the fullness of time. In other words, Jesus appeared on the scene at exactly the right moment in history. This long-awaited one that we talked about a couple weeks ago, this long-awaited one shows up at this, at this right moment in history, and, he, and he's born. And, and actually, when Jesus is born, interestingly enough, he's born under an era of really bad government. Now, you had the Roman Empire that's ruling over Jerusalem and Judea and kind of the Jews in that area in Israel, and that's organized. You think of Rome and all the power of Rome and the glory of Rome and the robes and the, you know, the grape, the fig leaves and the grapes and the, all that kind of stuff, right? Rome, you got all that power, but then you have, you know, governors and kind of different leaders underneath that, and there's some pretty crummy government in place when, when Jesus comes along. So let me, let me back up and tell you kind of the history of that, because there's someone who's king when Jesus is born. There's a king, but there's some history to that. When the Israelites leave Egypt, they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and they, they leave Egypt in about 1440 BC, okay? So they leave Egypt, and they go wander in the desert for 40 years before they uh, end up in the promised land where Jerusalem is, modern-day Israel, before they end up in that piece of land. They wander in the desert. While they are wandering, they are led by a guy named Moses. Moses is a, an old man at the time, and he's a, he's a good leader. He's, a, uh, he's got his weaknesses. We'll talk about him next week and how he kind of sets up this whole thing. But Moses is a leader, and he's basically a judge over Israel. People have their disputes. They, have, they get sideways about the laws amongst each other, and Moses judges that. When he dies, he's succeeded by a guy named Joshua. Joshua's also a good leader, and there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about him. But after Joshua... You have a whole succession of leaders. They're called judges. There's a whole book in the Old Testament about them, the judges. And it's people you may have heard of, people like Deborah or, or Gideon, uh, and some that you probably haven't heard of. So there's this whole list of judges that, that lead Israel. They, they're the leaders over Israel for a couple hundred years. And the idea is God is in charge. God is king of Israel. And then you're going to have a leader underneath you, like a, an, an under-shepherd kind of person who's going to help lead. These are the judges. These are people like Moses and all the people that came later. Well, eventually, the Israelites look at all their neighbors as they're this, you know, start-up little country. They look at their neighbors of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, and, and they look around and they go, man, all these people have kings. We don't have a king. You know what would be cool? If we had a king. Because then we would be like the other countries. We would be powerful. We'd be awesome. We'd have our king that we would follow, and he would lead us, and it would be awesome. And this would be a great thing. This will make Israel great if we can just have a king. And so they go to uh, God and say, we want a king. And, and this is written about in the book of 1 Samuel. And, and Samuel, uh, he's going to have to install King Saul. I want to read to you how this goes down, the, the, the conversation about, oh, you want a king? So God goes, okay, I'll give you a king. If, you, if that's what you want, here you go. Let me read to you from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. It says this, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen, this is important. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. 
And he said to him, he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and will give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Wow. The people go... We want a king just like the other countries. And God goes, that's going to go really badly for you. And I just want to let you know right up front, we can have this arrangement where I am king over your life and you are directly with me and there's a judge and there's a a fairly flat hierarchy here. Or we can put a king in place like you want and it's going to go badly. This is what kings will do. This is what political power does. It will corrupt them. They will take your daughters and your sons and your land and your olives and your grain and all this stuff. This is what's going to happen. He warns them. Well, they put in a king, uh, Saul, who's, who's then followed by another king named David. And King David is a good king. He's the kind of king that the Israelites loved. I mean, he, he had his flaws. There's a lot written about him in the, in the scripture. But he's the kind of king where, where we talk about, oh, man, uh, David, this guy's amazing. He's, he's the good king. Look, he, he rules Israel in about the year 1000 B.C. And for 1,000 years after that, Jewish dads are going to take their kids and gather kids around and say, let me tell you about David. You know, like in the year like 400 BC, like 600 years after David, Jewish dads are still gathering the kids around it and they're saying, they're, they're, they're talking to their kids and they're saying, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot or something like that. They were basically like, hey, kids, at one point it was really good and King David was on the throne and it was awesome. And God makes a covenant with David. He makes this agreement with David. Um, he, he said, look, I took you from when you were a little boy tending the sheep out in the field, and now I've made you king. And listen to what God says to David in the covenant. Second Samuel 7, this is important. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is what God tells them, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Now, on the surface, this sounds like he's talking about Solomon, because Solomon does the things. Solomon builds the temple, the, the, the house for God kind of thing. And Solomon's a relatively good king, and it kind of leads Israel in a time of great prosperity. So it, a lot of it just sounds like he's talking about uh, Solomon. But he says, I will establish his throne forever. Wait a second. That doesn't work. Israel doesn't even have a king today. So obviously the forever part thing didn't work out. Well, scholars have pointed to this, and and Jewish scholars will point to this and say, this is a prediction about the coming of the Messiah. There is one coming. There will be this king who will return in the line of David, in in the throne, and he will rule over the people, and and he's going to be... Uh, a good king, and his throne will last forever. God makes that commitment to them. Well, after David, then Solomon, and then Solomon's kids, and it goes downhill very quickly. The people, uh, the, the kings that lead after Solomon, uh, just 
Mostly, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them. The, the kingdom splits into two, two groups, and then there's different kings over them. And, and the book of First and Second Kings and some of these books record who those kings were, and most of them are bad. A couple of them are good, but most of them are really bad leadership. And so the people complain, and they groan, and they're frustrated by the political leadership that is over them. And in about the year 700 B.C., a guy named Isaiah writes, and if you go back and read the prophets in the Old Testament, people like Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're writing during a time of bad political leadership and they're complaining about the leaders and the people around them. They're like, our country's going to crap and, this is, and we have bad leaders of it. Does any of that sound familiar? Have you heard any of that in our world, right? They're like, this is awful and everything's terrible and I, we, we, you know, we, the wrong person's been elected and all this stuff. They're complaining about it. Listen to what Isaiah says and this is where Christmas starts to make it into the story here, right? Listen to what Isaiah says during this time in 700 BC. As Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Well, that sounds hopeful. We're in darkness. Things are bad. It doesn't look good out there, but a light has shined on us. And then as it continues on, and you may have read this in a greeting card, it says this, you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and for the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from time, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. For unto us, a child is born. Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a return of the king. I know it looks bad out there right now, but good things are coming. And there will be a king who steps up in the line of David, who, 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 who arises to the throne, and he will be wonderful counselor, this prince of peace, and he will rule forevermore. And so he, he, he tells them this. Well, let's fast forward now 700 years as we go through the history to when Jesus is born. Jesus is born in roughly 5 B.C., somewhere between 6 and 4 is where they, where they figure it happened. And when Jesus is born, there is already a king in Israel. And it's a king named Herod. And Herod finds out that Jesus has been born, or that this guy Jesus is born, and that he's potentially a big deal. And so let me read to you. This is one of those texts we always read kind of in the Christmas story here. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 8. Listen to what happens. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of who? Oh, it's Herod, the king. He's the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was deeply touched and, and, and excited to, that there's a new king in town. No, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Prophecy, like we talked about last week. Prophecy predicting this future king. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly 
and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, if you read on, you know Herod has no plan to worship Jesus. What he actually does is send people to kill all the children in Bethlehem so that the, whoever's king will get killed. So it's, he's, it's, it's a brutal thing. But he plays it off like, no, no, ah. Because you can imagine, if you're king and someone shows up from out of town and goes, we're here to meet the king, and he's like, oh, it's me. And they're like, no, there's this one that was born. We saw, we see the signs. Like, there's, and, like you're a little threatened by that, especially if you're Herod. So a little background on Herod. Herod is a leader in Jerusalem, and he's made king not by some, like, uh, like succession bloodline thing. He's made king by the Romans. He was friends with the Romans. The Romans take over the area, Julius Caesar, all that kind of stuff. The Romans take the area, and because he's got a good relationship with the Romans, they're like, you can be, we'll make, you know, they've got like governors and prefects and these kind of people, and they're like, well, you can be like, we'll give you a title. You be king of Judea. And he's like, cool, I will be the king over all the Jews. And to the Romans, the Jews are just an ethnic minority. They don't care much about them. Fine, y'all want to have a little king? That's cool. This guy, Herod, is the king. Herod's problem is that he's an insecure narcissist, and he, and he, is, he is just out his head about, about his role, and, and very insecure about his leadership and about, about his position. In fact, uh, there's multiple uh, stuff, uh, instances where Herod just goes nuts on people um, and has people killed because he's threatened by them and that they might take over his leadership. He actually kills three of his own sons. He kills one of his wives. He kills his mother-in-law. Uh, he kills some, some other uh, family and relatives, some of his siblings. He kills a few of his key advisors. Uh, and he does this because he feels threatened. And then, as you read on later in the story, he, he has children under two uh, in, in Bethlehem killed after Jesus is born. Herod was so unliked that when he knew he was going to die as his days were wrapping up, he actually ordered that a lot of the priests of Israel would be imprisoned. And he had a bunch of priests put in prison. And his order was, on the day that I die, kill all the priests that are in prison so that there will be mourning in the nation on the day that I die. So this is like the sick guy, right? But if you had lived during the time of Herod, you might not have seen him as being, oh, all that bad. He had his issues, but generally he did some good things. I mean, there were great monuments built, and, and, and things were going fairly well, and, and he kept the peace fairly well, he, and, and, and he built impressive things. He had a palace named the Herodian, sort of named after him. And it was on a, one of the highest hills around. And on the highest hill, there's this big palace. Actually, if you go to Israel today, you can still see it. There's a, a, a really cool excavation of that spot on top of this hill, the Herodian. In this palace, that's where he would kind of look down over the countryside. Well, not far away from that palace is the little insignificant town of Bethlehem. And in that town, in, in a little basement of a house, um, a, a, a teenage girl gives birth to a baby boy. Uh, amidst animals and the smell of cow dung and things like that, right? In, in this dirty place, uh, this little girl named Mary gives birth to this, this baby boy named, named Jesus. And he is to be um, the king of, of the Jews. And it's such a contrast between Herod and all of his kingly power, ruling and being in the Herodian, and uh, this, this true king that was born. 
And so Herod freaks out. And the New Testament teaches that from these wise men and on, many people recognized that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was not just a healer. He was not just a nice guy or anything like that, but that, in fact, he was the king. In fact, right before Jesus was murdered on a cross, he has a confrontation with another leader of the time, a guy named Pontius Pilate. And they have this, they're, they're going to do this trial where they're going to send Jesus to his death. And so Jesus stands before Pilate, the, king of, the, the true king of the world, standing before a, a local Roman governor. And they have this conversation. Listen to what they said. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now remember, from, from birth, people have been saying that about Jesus. And Pilate's heard it. He doesn't really care because he's not Jewish, but he's like, yeah, they're saying like you're the king and they're mad about it. Are you the king? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So Pilate has heard that people are saying he's the king of the Jews. In fact, when he gets crucified, they're going to put a sign over him that says this is the king of the Jews. So he's heard this king thing about Jesus, and he's asking him, yo, people are upset because you're claiming to be king. Are you the king? And Jesus is like, yeah, who told you that? You know, and just kind of plays a little coy with him, you know, and he says, and then and he says, well, my, actually, I have a kingdom, and it's not like you think. It's not of this world. And then Pilate responds. Then Pilate said to him, verse 37, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, I love this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. What a, what a postmodern conversation. This could have happened in 2020. What is truth anymore? I don't even know. Well, you know, like they have this conversation. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm the king. I have a kingdom. And if you believe in the truth, you will understand this and believe in me. And, and, and Pilate's response isn't to argue the details. He's arguing the concept of truth altogether. I don't know. What is, what is true these days, man? We can't figure it out. It's all fake news. So Jesus says, I'm a king, and my kingdom is here, and the king has returned, and the kingdom looks different than what you think. Let me tell you why this matters. Three things, and then we're done. I was thinking through this entire line of David up to Jesus, and, and, and he's king of a kingdom, and it doesn't look like what you think. And I was thinking, all right, my job is to always build a bridge between that world and our world today, what, what, where we're living. So why does this matter in 2020? Why does it matter that Jesus... what? revealed himself as king to us. Number one is that Jesus is the king of history. There is a, a common thread in scripture from beginning to end that, that God knows us and that he loves us and that he has a, a plan for us. And what this means is that nothing you were experiencing in 2020 or in the past or beyond, nothing you're experiencing or will experience is a surprise to God. He's not like, oh, a virus didn't see that coming, or economic downturn, whoops. Like, there's no, there's no moment, there's, no, there's no, nothing happening that, Jesus, that, that God can't foresee as, as the king over his kingdom. Now, it doesn't mean that he loves everything that goes on, 
doesn't mean that he's making everything happen. I'm not one of those guys that's like, God sent COVID to punish, you know, whatever group or what, you know, like not, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying direct causation of everything terrible comes exactly from God's hand. But as the king over his kingdom, he's aware and he knows and he has a plan to make things work for his good. There's nothing as a surprise. He's a king. He understands his kingdom. And I think we should take comfort in that today. You may have seen this Oxford uh, every year, I guess the Oxford Dictionary, they publish a word of the year. And it's the word that like defined the year. And I want to just take you on a little bit of memory lane from 2013 to now and see if these words resonate with you. 2013, the word of the year was selfie. I would argue this is where things started to go wrong as a society. Like this was the big, historians will look back and go, also, interestingly, 20, 2012 was the first year more than 50% of the population had a smartphone. So selfie pops up in 2013, and then um, depression and mental crisis starts to skyrocket, right, from, from that time, especially in, among teenagers. That's another sermon for another time, but it's interesting. 2014, vape, because all the selfies, we were like, this is getting a little narciss- narcissistic, uh, we started vaping. 2015, they didn't even bother with a word. They actually just went with that emoji as the word of the year for uh, the laughing, crying one or whatever, which could be equally true this year. Um, 2016, post-truth. That's a big deal, guys. 2016, what defined us as a culture, post-truth. This is where we're at. You don't think the problems we're facing now, can, you can trace some roots Back to the death of truth, the death of believing that anything is true ever for anyone. There's no such thing as objective truth. That, that cocktail's been, been stirring for decades. I remember having those conversations about post-truth back in like 1999. There's, there's, this has been going on. 2017, youthquake. No idea what that is. But that, that's what they picked. Youthquake, guys. I guess it quaked and I missed it because I'm not young enough or something. I don't know. 2018, toxic. Uh, okay, cool. 2019, climate emergency. Climate emergency is the thing we were talking in 2019. And you're wondering, what is 2020? Because here we are at the end. What is the word of the year? Um, and I actually looked it up to see if they had done it. And they, they, they kind of cheesed out on this one because they said, actually, there's a bunch of words for 2020. I'm like, you got to pick one. That's not how this game works. I mean, because if I'm going to pick one, I'm going to go with, like, unprecedented, right? Doesn't that feel like the word of, at least it's the word of commercials this year or something, like, the word of the year is unprecedented. Maybe that would be the word, maybe something like COVID, whatever. But let me offer this as a possible word of the year. Anxiety. Anxiety. We are anxious, anxious people. And we live in a culture that fuels that, that, that throws Grease on the anxiety fire. What is, what is going on there? We're anxious people. And so does it matter who is the king over all of history? I think it does. I think it's the thing that will help us be non-anxious people in the midst of an anxiety-inducing culture, in the midst of trouble and turmoil and weird stuff going on all around us. We can be the non-anxious people because we have a different kingdom. We are not 
that yes, the, the rulers of this world are going to do their thing and there's going to be leaders and governors and presidents and all that kind of stuff, mayors, and they're going to make their decisions and some of those are going to affect us and some of those we're going to like and some of them we're gonna, not going to like. But at the end of the day, we will not be anxious because we know who's the king of history and we are people of a different kingdom no matter where we live and at what time we live. So number one, Jesus is the king of history. Number two, Jesus' ultimate kingdom is still to come. Despite Jesus being born, despite the fact that he shows up as the king, despite the fact that he is acknowledged as such and he dies as such and he inaugurates this new kingdom that we now live and are a part of, this, this kingdom that expend, extends beyond geographic and political boundaries, despite the fact that he has launched all of that, there is a sense, and we all know this, that the world is still very broken. The kingdom is not as good as I thought it was going to be. I thought it would be so great and there'd be so much peace and so much happiness and so much harmony and we would all hold hands across the world and we would sing the, the, the Diet Coke song or something and we would be all happy together and it was going to be wonderful and that hasn't happened yet and I'm very disappointed despite all of that. I, I mean, I just think we all know this thing is broken. We're broken. Our neighbors are broken. Our friends are broken. Our family is broken. The system is broken. The systemic injustices are there. Like we, we understand this. And so we know Yes, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not quite where it needs to be. It is not fulfilled yet. Um, we see the effects of that every day. So as, as, the, as the Jesus kingdom people, we need to take the posture of uh, Jesus is going to do something, and it's not, it's, uh, it hasn't arrived yet, but, but it's in process now. Um, this is important because I think that the hope of Jesus' return again, the hope of the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom has emboldened Christian people throughout history. They've basically said, okay, I see it. I see where this is going. Jesus is still going to do something. I think one of the most frustrating things about COVID, and there are many, but I think one of the most frustrating things is not having clarity about how this ends. Wouldn't you, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? I remember March 12th. March 12th is when all the sports leagues quit. It was a rough day in my house, okay? March 13th is when we got together as a staff and said, I don't think we can do church on Sunday the way we've been doing it. And everything had to change within 48 hours. And, and, and if you remember the conversations you're having at work or home or whatever back then, it's, well, I mean, maybe, man, for a week we should probably kind of lay low a little bit. And then they're like, well, it's two weeks, you know, you need to, okay, we better lay low for two weeks. We're going to have to kind of stay home and... I don't know, it's two, okay, well, I can do this for two weeks, and two weeks continues on, and then it's three or four, and they're just like, you know, just wait two more weeks, and I'm like, how long can we keep doing two weeks? I don't, there's only so many, you know, at some point, I'm like, all right, y'all are messing with me now, right? Like, so, so that, you know, then June comes, and they, oh, phase one, and all this stuff happens, and, and uh, I, I, I have found myself over, over the months, over the last couple months, just asking the question to people, to friends I notice, anyone who's like, I think smart and maybe knows something like, can you, can you tell me how this ends? I, wanna, I just want to flip to the last chapter in the book and read it and see where this goes. Can you just, I don't have time to sit through the whole thing. Can you just tell me how this ends? And nobody can tell you how it ends. They're, oh, well, maybe there'll be a vaccine and blah, blah, blah. What? But we're not going to distribute it, but we can, but we can't. I'm just like, what? How does this end? And that is so frustrating. The scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when you hope for, for an ending point to something, when you have an end game, you can put up with almost anything. But when there's no end game, when this just goes on forever, 
it's super frustrating and discouraging. And I think what Christians have when you follow Jesus and you give your life to him and you're in his kingdom, you have an end game. You have a, wait, this is going somewhere. The details are not always my preference and all that, but this is going somewhere. The timeline of history uh, is, is good and, and God is taking us somewhere. God is unfolding an actual plan. And one day we will be less anxious than we are now. Theologians talk about salvation and they talk about it. They say the scripture refers to salvation in three ways. That Jesus saved us on the cross, so it's in the past. You have been saved when you came to Christ. You were baptized in him. You, know, you, you have. And then you are being saved. You're being sanctified as you grow. And then you will one day be saved. That ultimate kingdom is coming. And so there's this sense of I am already saved, but I'm not quite yet there. An already but not yet life. And that is where we live. We live in the already but not yet space of God is good and his kingdom is, has come, but it's not ultimately fulfilled yet. There's more, more to come. So, and finally this, um, what should our response to all that be? Jesus, king of history, Jesus' kingdom is still to come. And then this, number three, we should live a life of loyalty to the king. In the ancient world, loyalty is going to look exactly like God lays it out to the people when they ask for a king. Loyalty to the king in the ancient world will look like you're going to serve in his army. You're going to, you know, give up your chariots. You're going to give up your land, your, your grain, your, your money. Your daughters are going to have to go do this. Like, he's going to take all of that from you. That's loyalty to the king. You pay your tax to the king. You, you give to the king. You do all those things in the ancient world. Loyalty to Jesus as king is going to look different than that. In fact, when Jesus proclaims his kingdom, here's what he tells people to do. He doesn't show up on the scene and say, I'm king, so pay me some tax money and get me a crown, and you all need to come over here and like wash my feet or something like that. He doesn't do that. When Jesus shows up at the king, it, you see this at the beginning of the gospels. This is what he says. The kingdom of, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. That's what, that's what he tells us to do. Repent. In other words, turn away from your sin. You're doing these things. Stop, stop doing that. Stop walking down that road. Walk completely the opposite way of that and start following after Jesus. Repent, turn away from, and believe in Jesus. Now, neither of those things, repenting, repentance or belief, are one-time events. Yes, you believe in Jesus. When you come to him, you get baptized in him. Yes, you say, I'm going to repent of my sins, all that. When you, when you start your journey with Christ. But it's an ongoing process. A continual repentance, continual belief, and, and continual stretching your belief and testing your belief and working through your beliefs and wrestling with your doubts and all that. That, that, that stuff's going to continue. And, and loyalty to the king, Jesus, looks like finding ways to continue to show our, our faith and trust in him. This is why I love what we do at Advent. The, the culture gets behind Christmas, and Christmas has a whole cultural thing around it, right? It has sleigh bells and deer and a red nose and all this stuff, right? That's cultural Christmas. But in the church, and in this church in particular, we have, we have said, let's, 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 let's hold on to Advent, which historically Christians and churches all over have, have said, this is a season. It's not a day. It's a season. Let's hold on to Advent and say, during Advent, we want to do we want to do kingdom different than the world. The kingdom of Herod will say, be impressive, buy more stuff, bigger, better, more. But the kingdom of Jesus is going to say, nope, it doesn't look like that. We serve, we love, we give to others. For Advent this year, we have partnered with Grace and Peace Ministries. A lot of you do work with them and know them here in the church. They do great work. Um, 
and, and Raven Street here over on the east side of town. And so we're partnering with them. We want to raise money as a church to give uh, to give to, to buy them uh, reliable transportation for a lot of the projects and different things that they do. So we want to get a van for that. And so we're asking you, the only time we do in the year, we ask you to give beyond what you normally give to the church and give a special offering at Advent for this project. And in doing that, you, you proclaim, not just with your mouth, but with your wallet, you proclaim, I'm part of a different kingdom. Because it's easy to say that with your mouth. Relatively easy, Right? But the rubber hits the road, right, is when you, when you put money behind it or you put, you put action behind it. You go, okay, I, I believe in this. So I'm going to actually put my money there. That, that's a different thing. And this is what we're challenging people to do at Advent this year, to give from now through the end of the year. Give online. Um, and, and, and if you're watching online right now, you can do this with us um, or here in the room. Uh, this is a great opportunity because we have a really great chance here to love uh, people in our in our community, and and to to show where our allegiance and our loyalty truly lie. Um, if if my allegiance is to Jesus, I will spend money differently than if my allegiance is to the kingdoms of this world. There's an opportunity here that we have to say Herod is not king here. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one. And we have an opportunity to, to say, not just Jesus is king by my words, but Jesus is king also with the way I spend money, which Jesus connects money and heart. So really, in, in, in many ways, what we're saying when, when we give and, and we are generous people, we are saying Jesus is not just king of my words, my wallet, but he's actually the king of my heart. And that's a powerful thing. So I want to pray. We're going to take communion together, and I want us to sing about that idea. So let me pray, and then I'll, I'll set that up. God, um, I, I thank you for being the king and for inaugurating a new kingdom in the world. To a world that was in darkness and was hopeless, you showed up to change the game and to flip the script for everyone. And God, I, I thank you for that, and, and I, God, I, I, I uh, acknowledge that it is so needed today and so needed in our culture. God, um, I, I pray as we take communion together that we remember your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son, that, he, that his crowning moment was actually on the cross. Um, and, and, and in doing that, he, he, he brought us this new kingdom. Help us to live in the reality of that today. In Jesus' name, amen.